0: Thank you so much for being here. This is our, our fourth edition of uh, Show Do Tell. Uh, I like to think of it as a reading series where we also get to meet readers, uh, do a little bit of an inter- interview format uh, after the readers read, and try to get an insight into their process and uh, personal journey or whatever. Uh, new, new agey, uh, generic comments I'm going to throw out. So <laughs> I want to start off today uh, by reading this poem by uh, Delmore Shorts. Uh, It's called uh, Calmly We Walk Through This April's Day. Calmly we walk through this April's day. Metropolitan poetry here and there. In the park sit pauper and rentier. The screaming children, the motor car. Fugitive about us, running away between the worker and the millionaire. Number provides all distances. It is 1937 now. Many great dears are taken away. What will become of you and me? This is the school in which we learn. Besides the photo and the memory, that time is the fire in which we burn. This is the school in which we learn. What is the self amid this blaze? What am I now that I was then, which I shall suffer and act again? The theodicy I wrote in my high school days restored all life from infancy. The children shouting are bright as they run. This is the school in which they learn, ravished entirely in their passing play. That time is the fire in which they burn. Added its rush, that reeling blaze. Where is my father and Eleanor? Not where are they now, dead seven years, but what they were then. No more, no more. From 1914 to the present day, Bert Spear, and Rhoda consume, consume. Not where they are now, where are they now, but what they were then, both beautiful. Each minute bursts in the burning room. The great globe reels in the solar fire, spinning the trivial and unique away. How all things flash, how all things flare. What am I now that I was then? May memory restore again and again the smallest color of the smallest day. Time is the school in which we learn, time is the fire in which we burn. Delmore Schwartz. Yeah. Fascinating thing about that is uh, we did the reading last month, and it happened to be Louis Reed's birthday. And uh, I read um, uh, Coney Island, Baby. I read the lyrics to that song. It's my favorite Lou Reed song. And Delmore Schwartz is Lou Reed's teacher. So oh, it's just a really interesting coincidence in college. Uh, so yeah, a little synchronicity to start your Saturday. Um, so yeah, we're going to have uh, Julia Lynn Rubin come up. Uh, her novel, Burrow Hills, was published in uh, March 2018. And uh, come on up. Oh, let's get the story started.
1: Shut
0: for you. Shut. Sure.
2: Can you want me to uh, lower this a little, please? Yes. Yeah, this sure. isn't one of those that just like goes up and down. Thank you. Hello. Um, it's okay if, if you can. I'll, I can, like. Yeah, maybe Can you use that? mic? Yeah. It's <laughs> the now. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Oh, um, yeah, okay. <laughs> hi, I'm Julia. Um, I went to the new school with my friend Ashley, We graduated in 2017 in the MFA program. Um, Thank you! Um, That's how we met, me and Matt. um, uh, My first book came out in 2018, which is a year ago, which is crazy, in March. And um, I write short stories, I write novels, and um, I'm going to first write, I mean, first read, sorry, a flash fiction piece that just got accepted in a literary magazine, and it's called Cows on the Windowsill. The flowers on the windowsill look like little folded pieces pieces of paper, like fabric. At least, that's how they look to her. Her skin has turned a gauzy gray from all the chemicals they've been feeding her day in and day out, and her eyes are clouded over with little petals of milky white, but at least she can still see. That's There's that, at least. Not that there is much to see here in this stark white room, so minimalistic nothing at all like the stately victorian she used to own the one that bordered the sea but there's the flowers and the window for several blessed hours a day warm sunlight bleeds through it and caresses her skin the doctors and doctors and nurses come in and out changing her tubes feeding her bathing her making sure she moves so the bed sores don't come back and she does her best to smile at them but it hurts a little from the effort mostly though she enjoys the window and the flowers on the sill She's not sure who brought her the flowers exactly. They're soft pink, like fairy floss, purple and candy green, little pillows of sweetness. No one she knows would have had them brought to her or delivered as there's no one to know anymore. All of her family is long dead. She's never been partial to rain, but these days, hearing it pitter-patter against the glass is like some kind of narcotic lullaby. She drifts in and out from the chemicals they feed her her mind looping in on itself, over and over, but the rain keeps her grounded, focused, centered, as centered as one can be considering the circumstances, considering the state of the world. At night, she asks the nurses to open the window just to crack so she can listen to the crickets and the faint roar of traffic sounds. She misses crickets, ocean water on her skin, salt spray up her nose from the sea. She misses the buoyancy of her body, the way swimming felt like flying, back before the radiation stole most of her voice and turned her skin to curdled gray milk. Milk, it makes her think of cows. They were so beautiful, with their soft brown eyes and gentle, throaty voices, like old men who hadn't yet had their morning porridge, eyeing you with that same intensity, sweet, grumpy things. Cows, there aren't cows anymore. And she realizes it then, suddenly. It all comes back to her, tilting her fragile axis. She realizes it very sadly, her gray gauzy hands clasped and folded together, sinking further into her pillows, that the reason the flowers look unreal is because they aren't real at all. There aren't flowers anymore, and there aren't any crickets either. She vaguely recalls, thinking back as best she can, as best as the chemicals will allow, that they would turn on the animal sounds at night where she lived, before things started turning up on the beach, fish, octopus, great whales, rotting and stinking in the baking sun. The smell got so bad, she had to shut her windows day and night, run the safe air. The bills were high back then. There was no ocean anymore, not really, just a milky gray mass, but the animal noises. Yes, they used to turn them on each evening, Owls and crickets and dogs barking. And sometimes, every now and then, she swears she heard them sneak it in. She swears it, the sweet peals of a child laughing. It helped everyone to remember. It helped everyone to forget. Thanks, that's cows on the windowsill. Um, I have extra time, and I just realized that I have like 15-minute blocks. So I'm going to read, I can either read from a book I'm working on, which is a Thelma-Louise reimagining, and it's a YA. I can read the first few pages, or I can read a horror short story. Which one would you guys rather hear? (laughs) Uh, Horror. You want to read the horror? Horror. Okay, cool. We'll stay on theme. (laughs) Okay, this is called Carne. It was only after we were seated by the big picture window that I noticed the smell. Did you smell that? I asked Tracy. She shrugged and popped open her plastic menu. It made a crunching sound as the binding broke. Probably from the kitchen, she said. As if there was any doubt it was coming from the kitchen. Fontina can be especially featured. As if they were still making things like Fontina cheese and here, of all places. But it stayed with me, this strange, singed scent that wafted now and then from the kitchen area like a mix of oil and rotten milk. The lady luck was nearly empty of patrons. It was awash in algae-green wallpaper sofas in the waiting area, and little hardback love seats. Off-gold trimmings laced those chairs, our table, our silverware, even our little foggy glasses of tap water we'd been served the second we sat down. We'd been advised many times that the tap here was no longer safe, but we were young and broke and desperate for a good bite to eat after weeks of backpacking and chomping dry trail mix and soggy street food, wandering through the sticky hot streets of this new American landscape. A perpetual fog hung over the rolling hills, and most days it rained on and off as if the sky were leaking. The lady luck hadn't really been Tracy's idea, but it had come on a good recommendation from a gray-haired bus driver we met a few days back while en route to the city center. They outsourced their meat locally, he told us. He had a big, toothy grin. The restaurants here save quite a bit buying from local farms. Plus, it's fresher, I hear. Tastes better than what we've been doing up in the labs. Much cheaper. His teeth were graying and yellowed at the mullers, an unfortunate side effect of the corrosion that had leached local pipes of lead. A bad omen, perhaps. But Tracy and I on a tight budget that only allowed for the occasional luxury. We couldn't possibly afford the pricey filtered water here. We'd survive. You should check out the Lady Lux, the driver had went on, palming the wheel as the bus rumbled over a clump of fresh mud. You might have mistaken him for a rummager. If he hadn't been driving that big clunky bus, or if his skin didn't look so clean. That's my favorite place around the old center area. Great food. Really great food. Sounds great, Tracy murmured, distracted by her teletablet, eyes darting back and forth as she tapped away at the screen, logging her travel time and various expenses. I'd been staring out at the mist threaded through the coniferous trees, the never-ending mossy slopes and hills that zigzagged away into oblivion. Lightning punched through a patch of metallic clouds. I shivered. It was so hot and humid here, but also always oddly chilly. And so here we were, as Tracy had written the name of the restaurant down in her teletablet earlier that day, along with how much we'd spent the night before on new ponchos and fresh pairs of socks and powdered milk. We'd had a bit of trouble with some rummagers outside of the establishment when we first arrived. Filthy, stinking, in rags, they moaned and grabbed our pant legs and coattails, begging for just a tiny morsel of food, a scrap of something to eat. All three of the creatures had purplish oils covering their weedy arms. Tracy had recoiled and launched a hard kick at one in the stomach. It had doubled over, groaning in pain. We'd been warned to avoid them well before we even solidified our trip to the States. If one bit you, you could get infected and swell up with those same nasty sores all over your body, or catch an incurable illness, or worse. We didn't know exactly what worse was, but we'd heard it enough times growing up not to question the weight of it. Yes, it was best to avoid the rummagers. Please, a female with yellowing eyes had screeched. She had no teeth, and she gummed at us noisily. Please, a morsel, a morsel. Fuck off. Tracy wrenched me by the arm and pulled me along the rest of the wet paths in the lady luck. Come on, Danny, don't look at them. Don't even give them the satisfaction. And I followed her, rather reluctantly, into the restaurant, but by then my appetite had decreased considerably. The lighting in here is weird, I said. Tracy flipped her menu page. She didn't bother looking up at me. Hmm, you're like way too observant, Danny. You notice too much. But the lighting was weird. I swear it was. From the way the shadows danced in the glow of the candlelight to the glowering medicated yellow of the half-lit chandeliers that hung from the ceiling. Momentarily, our waiter approached us. He was a tall impossibly thin and young-looking boy. Way too young, I decided, with wide onyx eyes and jet-black hair. He wore a carmine apron and pressed black slacks. His hands were massive much too big, as he pressed them together conversationally. His fingers were extraordinarily long and slender, like the fingers of a giant. Would you like to hear about today's specials, he asked. His voice was very small and whispery, and I had to stray to hear him. I opened my mouth to answer, but Tracy cut me off. I think I know what I want, she said, jamming her finger at the menu. This looks good. Right here. I've heard about this. "'Grizzled carne. Mmm. You'll like this, Danny. Says it's best served nice and pink on the inside, "'a little burnt on the outside with hot sauce and paprika and ginger.' "'She chewed at her straw, drool-forming at the corner of her mouth. "'The boy nodded and laced his two long fingers together. "'It comes highly recommended from our chef,' he said softly. "'His voice was like the inside of a corn husk. "'Okay, let's do it,' Tracy said before I could speak. "'It's only fifty. We can split it, yeah, Danny?' "'The boy's lips turned up into a half grimace, half semblance of a smile.' Outside, they turn on the on-site nocturnal sounds, the sounds of crickets and owls paired with haunting howls of coyote. Strange, as there are probably never coyotes out this far east. I guess, I mumbled. Frustrating as it was, it was easier to let Chase, Tracy choose things, get food or lodging or where to empty our bladders when we were stuck on the road without a place to pee. Tracy's father had been stationed at the military base sometime during the second strike, so she lived here for a year or two as a child. He was a real man of the field, who knew his way around the flora and the fauna, and he passed that on to his daughter. So, or so I've repeatedly been told. And as for my parents, well, they never bothered to come to the states. <clears throat> they had, in fact, warned me to never travel here alone if I ever came at all, and they seemed deeply uncomfortable with the entire concept of us sleeping two months by, spending two months by ourselves, backpacking through endless terrain beneath acidic skies. After the waiter took our menus, Tracy babbled on about the super seal she'd located on her teletablet this half-priced bungalow at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. We'll see all kinds of great historical stuff, she said. Old highways and motels, those strange things called power lines. Dad told me before they moved it all underground, they used to get knocked out and cause fires during storms. Can you imagine, Danny? I mean, what were they thinking? She scoffed and took a big, noisy gulp of her tap water. I reached for my glass, but then remembered the bus driver's molding teeth and thought better of it. Presently, the small waiter brought our massive plate of grizzled carne, two heaps of pinkish thigh dripping with fat and oil, and coated in a thick layer of hot sauce paprika and wiry black pepper. Careful, he whispered as he set it down before us. The strange smell from earlier hit me full on in the face, making my eyes water. Very hot. Tracy lit up and began to tear into her dish with relish, while I picked at my portion and took a few hesitant nibbles. "'Come on, Danny,' she whined. "'It's been days since we've had meat. "'You don't want to be hungry tonight, do you? "'We're spending almost all of ours on this meal, after all.' "'I rolled my eyes when she wasn't looking and sighed, "'tore off a piece, a particularly thick piece covered in skin, "'which was rubbery and slightly burnt, "'and gave an inquisitive sniff and took a bite. "'It was chewy at first, stringy in sections, "'crunchy in the middle, "'with the faintest taste of metal underneath. "'I gagged. "'Danny?' "'Tracy licked her greasy fingers.' What the hell, did you swallow it too fast or something? I spit out the meat onto the plate rimmed with off-gold. Now it was coated in a thin layer of my saliva. I wiped my mouth with the carmine red cloth napkin. I don't like it, I said. Tracy grunted, how do you not like it? What's wrong with you? It's local meat, freshly gone on a real farm. It's some of the best there is. I just don't like it, I said. I reached for my water glass again, suddenly deliriously thirsty. But somehow, something about that foggy water kept me from... Is everything all right? The small boy had suddenly appeared by our table. His massive hands clasped, his large owl eyes, inspecting us at length. It, it just tastes a bit funny is all, I said weakly. The boy continued to smile as if he didn't understand. It might be that it's undercooked, just a little. Tracy's eyes narrowed. The boy smiled, his eyes half empty. Fine, fine meat, he said softly. Very fine, hand selected by our chef. I might need to... To get any batch, or not eat it at all, I said. Really, it's fine. Maybe it's just not for me. "'Danny,' me, Tracy had under her breath. You're embarrassing me. Not a worry, the boy said, eyes crinkling with sudden understanding. He reached out and swooped the plate up, balancing it on the tips of his slender fingers. We'll get you a nice piece of thigh in just a tick. And with that, he disappeared into the bathroom, back rooms. Tracy's lips were coated in sauce, like a fat, pinkish streak of lipstick. You don't have to be so awkward, Danny, she complained. Seriously, if you bring her out like back home, they'll think you're like rude or ungrateful or something. I'm going to the bathroom. This time, I let her watch me roll my eyes. Whatever. These days, most restaurant bathrooms were coated in a fine thick layer of lavender and sage in an attempt to disguise the many regular plumbing issues. This particular restroom is no exception. The same algae-green wallpaper scaled the walls like creeping vines, and the medicated off-gulch trimming encircled the mirrors, the sink bowls, and even the toilet seats. When I finished, I meant to hurry back to the table to continue my meal, as not to keep Tracy waiting, but a movement by the large silver kitchen doors gave me pause. I saw him through the circular window that looked into the kitchen area. It was our waiter. His work shirt had been lifted to reveal his bare skin. A small young waitress who was much too short was gaping at it, and so was I. Across his stomach was a collection of big, bulging, purplish boils. My insides lurched. A rummager, or at least, perhaps a person who'd been bitten by one, was serving food at this restaurant. I had to let Tracy know. It did take quite a while to get a word in once I'd returned to the table. Tracy had ordered a massy fizzy imitation tomato and olive cocktail in my absence, and seemed to be feeling its rather potent effects already. She went on and on as I pushed this stringy new piece of thigh on my plate, talking about everything and nothing, waving her arms and clicking her tongue now and then for extra dramatic effect. Our waiter might be a rummager, I said, as soon as there was a space of silence to be filled. Tracy, who had been holding her breath, as she had in fact been in the middle of a long and meandering sentence about discounted acid-proof ponchos the next walkover, deflated like a balloon. What? I nodded conspiratorily, enjoying that for once. I knew something here that she didn't. I told her about what I'd seen on way back to the table, and as I talked, measuring each word with relish as Tracy listened attentively, I found myself taking more bites of the strange thigh meat on my plate. The smell was still strong, the taste still sharp and metallic, but somehow my senses had dulled enough to power through without having too much of a visceral reaction. It was rather tasty. When I finished my spiel, Tracy slammed her cocktail glass down so hard on the table, spatters of imitation tomato and olive juice went flying everywhere. You have to go complain to the manager, she cried. This is absolutely unacceptable. Disgusting. She pushed her plate and folded her arms, pouting like a child. I refuse to eat this food, let alone pay $50 for it. Go find the manager now, Danny. Tell them we aren't paying. Me? Why was it always me? Why can't you do it, I asked. She raised an eyebrow. Because I didn't see it, she said, as if I were stupid. I wasn't there. Seriously, Danny, do I have to spell out everything for you? I choose to be patient. He might not even be a rummager, I said, as evenly as I can manage. I might have been mistaken. Well, that's not a mistake I'm willing to risk. He's handling our food. Do you know how unsanitary that is? Dangerous. You know we got sick here. We could totally die. Quite an exaggeration, but I let it slide. At least go find a manager, please, Danny. Please. Her voice had changed to a pitch high and whiny now, and I got up and left the table in part just to get away from her. I hesitated by the kitchen doors for a moment, watching a waiter or someone who looked managerial. A door swung open, and a short female waiter from and the short female waiter from earlier nearly crashed into me with a tray of liquid desserts. Oh, she squeaked, sorry, sorry, sorry. As she darted off, the door swung open and shut, and there was that smell again, stronger than even at the table with a piece of thigh before us, in fact. I began to grow impatient, and the smell was so potent it made my stomach turn. Oddly, this time, there was the same sense of metallic that I could feel in my throat when I would eaten a piece of thigh. I peeked between the kitchen doors, searching for some kind of higher up, and as I hadn't seen anyone manning the front of the lady luck nearly empty for a weekend afternoon. Behind the door was the kitchen staff milling about, cleaning and scrubbing the silverware and cookery. The cooks themselves were busy cutting something up on a shiny metal table, laughing and joking, dark crimson spattered all over their two white uniforms. I pushed the kitchen doors open slightly, leaning in to get a better look at the meat they were preparing. There, on the metal table, lay a naked carcass, half carved with sallow skin. A wee arm lay limp over the side, the rubber mouth half-open and a permanent stare. It was a rummager, covered in dozens of angry purple boils, with the blank eyes that saw right through mine and the bloated face of the woman. Thank you. Wow! wow. Wait, wait. Yeah. Sorry, this is for another one. I was really trying to get through that fast, so I did my 15 minutes. You have a system here. I have a system. I have a system. Yeah,
0: so something I, I picked up on, uh, even though both the two pieces were pretty different, I thought the flash piece and the longer piece, but they, they both had a ecological concerns that I thought. I was wondering, I <laughs> feel like that's an important aspect of uh, what you're working on right now. What you think uh, a writer's role in our current situation with global warming and everything that might be?
2: It's funny because what I'm working on right now has nothing to do with ecology but it does have to do with like the state of the world and the Me Too movement and I think I've always just been fascinated by the horrible things we do to each other on our planet and um, I like inserting commentary about that into my work so yeah, I mean, they're I know they're so similar, like when I write horror I tend to go for like post-apocalyptic sci-fi for some reason um, but yeah, I think as writers it's important that we write our truth, like how we feel about things and our anger and and we can write we can write it satirically or we can write it honestly, but I think it's important to put it in our work, no matter how we feel about things.
0: Thank you so much for coming and reading. And Thank you. Fantastic.
2: Thank yeah. You. Thanks for having me. All right.
0: Good way. Good way you look Yeah, I, uh, I can't I can't figure out this mic. So if you need a smaller mic, just use this. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Amanda Miller is a NYC-based writer and actor. Her writing has appeared in free-range nonfiction, The Rumpus, Having a Whiskey Coke With You, Runaway Parade, Crate Lit, Underwire Magazine, So Long, Short Memoirs of Boston Remembrance, and more. Her memoir, One Breath Then Another, was published in 2013 on Lucid River Press. Amanda is the creator of multiple solo theater pieces, including How to Suffer Better, Camp Smile Power, Curing Anger One Smile at a Time, and One Breath, Then Another, an Interactive Yoga Show, which was in the San Francisco Fringe Festival and a few other festivals. She has produced the literary music series Lyrics, Lit, and Liquor for over six years. She was an MFA in creative writing from the New school, BFA in acting from NYU. Uh, take away, man.
1: This one is better. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's missing, like, a so Um, How's everyone
2: doing this Saturday afternoon? Good. Woo! Woo! Spring.
1: <laughs> All right. I think that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, okay, so I'm... It feels like it's in my notes. That's though. how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm not good with these either. All right. I'll just deal. Um, so... Uh, I'm going to read to you from a novel in progress that I'm progressing slowly on. Um, And uh, Okay, here's what you need to know. Um, The narrator is a young painter who just graduated from a studio art program in New York City. Uh, She lives with her musician boyfriend and um, she broke her hand not so long ago at his rock show and she just got her cast off, and um, we're gonna start where uh, in the middle of the scene where they're speaking in bed. Alright, um, okay, it's just gonna be in my nose. Welcome back! Oh, I mean, I, I,
3: I, I, um, uh,
1: yeah? Yeah, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I think it's not worth it. Okay, thanks for having me, Matt. Um, okay, so when you're done smelling when you're done studying that smelly hunk of plaster do you think you can look for jobs things are getting tight around here Aaron's eyes remained shut as he delivered the sentence since school ended Aaron had been covering the rent with the money he made bartending and playing gigs and was increasingly on my case to contribute I knew it wasn't fair to expect him to cover everything but I also knew that if I just sold a painting or two I could have rent for months if I focused on anything other than my art I risked sacrificing career momentum. Success required a full-time commitment. I begrudged girls in my program like Nadia and Lydia who came from such rich families they could float while they worked on establishing themselves post-college. I guess I could do some piece of shit job so Aaron wouldn't resent me. I would just have to make art my priority and get up early in the morning to do my work before I had to go to the survival job. And I would have to keep telling myself the survival job was just temporary. "'Okay, okay, I will look today,' I said. "'Great, night." I pulled my T-shirt and panties from the floor and threw them on using both hands. There's nothing like losing some, something temporarily to remind a person how great it is to have that thing. People should volunteer to get a bro, broken now and then to appreciate having full use of all their body parts. Of course, there were people in the world who actually were missing body parts because of birth defects, diseases, and acts of violence. Why was it so hard for me to remember how lucky I was? I shut the bedroom door and moseyed to the living room where I was greeted with the gutted remains of my plaster arm prison strewn across the coffee table like roadkill. I sat on the couch and stared it down. It smelled faintly of rotting garbage, but I liked it because it reminded me of my childhood before my dad left, how it would take so long for my parents to dispose of the trash. It would just pile up in the garbage can, and rather than lug it out to the bin on the side of the house, my dad would always shove down the mound of discarded food items, wet containers, and dirty paper towels as hard as he could, usually by way of his shoe, before adding more. After he moved out, my mom always made sure to remove the trash from the house when it was three quarters full. I picked up the cast and rotated it slowly between my hands, thinking how strange for something that had been latched to my body to now be separate from me. While it had prevented me from doing so many activities I had previously taken for granted, I'd become oddly accustomed to the thing. It's amazing how resilient humans are. How when we are forced to adapt, we just do. How I had no choice but to become adept at eating, drinking, writing, and drawing with my left hand. What can I make with this nasty thing? I could cut it up and attach bits of it to canvas and then paint over it to give some image added dimension. But what image? What was the first thing I could paint now that I had two free hands? I stared at it for a long time, to the point where all the surrounding imagery blurred, and then I shifted my focus to the surrounding imagery so the cast itself blurred, and then I crossed my eyes so everything blurred. I kept coming back to the idea of lost limbs, perhaps a piece depicting a soldier's leg being blown off due to an exploding shell during battle. Plaster pieces could be stuck on top of the blood gushing out of the thigh to give it texture and resemble bits of tissue. It could be kind of ironic, even. Using pieces of of a device designed to help limbs heal to illustrate the grotesquerie of an unsalvageable limb. Maybe even kind of funny. I had a blank 18 by 24 inch canvas in the closet. What the hell would I use to attach the plaster? Also, what would I cut it up with? We didn't have anything lying around the apartment that would really work. I'd have to go to the art store. I put the cast back on the table. Looking for jobs was the last thing I felt like doing. I wanted to paint and daydream and drink wine and nap and fuck Aaron and take a bath and get a call from Sandra saying my whole collection had sold and all these high-profile art dealers wanted to speak to me and interview me and I could call Al and tell him and he would be thrilled. This is what I wanted. Not to be scrolling through Craigslist looking for jobs in food service or retail. I got up and went to the kitchen. Maybe some cereal would help me focus. I threw open the cupboard, retrieved the box of Special K with red berries from the shelf, and then paused. I picked up the cereal bag inside the box to be greeted by the mini bottle of Jameson I'd hidden at the bottom. Aaron hated the idea of freeze-dried berries, so he never touched the stuff, which is why I knew this would be a perfect place to hide some booze. Being a little tipsy would probably make job searching a bit more bearable i have been so good about not drinking since breaking my hand, but now that the cast was off, I deserved to celebrate. And if Aaron wasn't in the mood to do so with me, I certainly was entitled to celebrate with myself. Clutching the bottle, I tiptoed to the bathroom to check under the sink for mouthwash and decided to stay there to drink in case Aaron happened to come out of the bedroom. I unscrewed the top of the tiny bottle and got a nice whiff. God, I love the smell. I would take one sip and get down to job searching, just one little taste. The moment the whiskey hit my tongue, I knew I was going to drink the whole thing. And I did, quite quickly. I relished the warm, relaxing sensation that flooded my body and decided to lie down on the bathroom rug to absorb it fully. As I lay there with my eyes closed, body melting into the floor, the image of the cast came into my mind. With every breath, the cast grew in size, until I imagined it taking up the entire living room to the point where it was blocking the front door. But, but before I could do any kind of jump job search, I had to make something out of that thing. I was way too distracted to focus on anything else. I got up and opened the door, then remembered my alcohol breath. I switched the blue minty li- liquid and spit. Then I tiptoed to the kitchen to put the bottle back under the plastic cereal bag inside the box, put the box back inside the cupboard and return to the couch to resume my staring contest with the cast. There was so much this smelly hunk of plaster could represent. Liberation was the most obvious, with that slit down the middle and the frayed edges on either side. Or I could do something having to do with reunification, which could also be a metaphor for the human condition, that we are all in a constant state of breaking apart and coming back together. Hmm. Or maybe there was a way to represent both. Except, how would I reattach the plaster? I really didn't feel like going to an art store right now. Nothing would even be open for at least another hour. I picked up the thing, and it it felt softer in my hands after consuming the whiskey. It also didn't smell as strong, or maybe I was just getting used to it. There was a clean cut down the middle, while the rest remained fully intact. What were other things like this? Hmm. A piece of pre-cut fruit... A piggy bank? A woman's stomach post-caesarean? Nah, my strongest idea was still the soldier. But again, I had no silicone adhesives, no epoxy glue, and no saw. The impulse was strong and immediate, and I knew I had to get to work quickly before I lost the drive. I ran to the kitchen, cast in hand, eyeing the cutting board as I threw open the silverware drawer. We must have had something I could use to hack the thing apart. I was hunched over the canvas on a plastic drop cloth in the kitchen, Black Sabbath's Iron Man tunneling through my earbuds, sending vibrations through my skull. I glanced down at my iPhone screen to see that the time was now 10.07. It had been over two hours since I started painting after taking a break from cast hacking, when I realized that neither the pizza cutter nor a single one of our kitchen knives would do the trick. This meant I'd been crunched into this half, half squat, half meal for over two hours. My left foot was all pins and needles from sitting on it, and my lower back was whining in pain. But I had no intention of shifting positions for fear of breaking my concentration. I usually worked at my easel, but it was folded up in the bedroom closet, and I hadn't wanted to risk break, uh, waking Aaron. Or breaking
2: Aaron.
1: I slid the bristles of my paintbrush across the top of the canvas, trailing a soft line of gold upon a blend of lavender and periwinkle. Then I lowered the brush to the plastic so I could stretch my right fingers and forearm and rotate my wrists around, muscles protesting these demands in their atrophied state. I sighed, picked up the brush, and paused to take in what I had created so far. The soldier was nearly complete, the camouflage uniform figure mid-fall arms and intact leg akimbo centimeters from the muddy ground below. His decimated leg looked truly gruesome, Pants shredded, crimson, burgundy, and candy apple red blood spurts shooting out in all directions like a fireworks display. All this set against a twilight sky, the gold appearing to shimmer both within and upon the light purple and blue shades. I was pleased that the soldier was truly disturbing and the sky was so lovely. I adored creating pieces where the beautiful and the ugly rubbed up against each other so the viewer either didn't know quite what to feel or was barraged with a spectrum of feelings. The man still needed a face. I pressed the tip of the paintbrush handle in my chin, stewing over what the expression should be. When I painted people, I generally saved the face for last. Painting a facial expression felt contrived to me. Facial expressions were emotional reactions to experiences, so it only made sense to nail down the experience first. Also, I liked to make the expression subtle, unexpected, or inconclusive. I didn't want the face of the figure to tell the viewer how to feel. It was better when a painting was more nuanced than that. The average viewer looks at a painting for under five seconds. I aspired to create work from which a viewer cannot look away. I wanted them to spend time with the image, to sink into it, to consider it from multiple angles. While I pondered the soldier's expression, I decided to examine the image from different angles myself to see if my vision for all sides had translated. From the left, the soldier appeared to be just barely balancing on a toe. From the, right, uh, from the right, there was no question the toe was off the ground and he was falling. And then from below, he looked like he might be flying. And from above, he seemed to be gesturing to the heavens, heart open to the sky. I reached my brush toward the paint palette to add more, uh, a touch more bold. When Black Dog by Led Zeppelin blasted into my ears at such a high frequency, I fell off my foot, kicking over the open bottle of burgundy paint so it spilled across the plastic, streaking the tiled floor. My dad loved this song. He played it in the car incessantly. I remember car washing with him when it came on, bumping our shoulders and elbows together. At red lights, we'd have air guitar playing contests, and I would thump my body against the seat as we rolled down the windows and yelled at the top of our lungs. It was so confusing when these kinds of fond memories popped up. This was the man I told myself I hated, the man I had every reason to hate. I sat up and searched for the paintbrush. Part of me wanted to skip the song and bury the memory. But part of me wanted to stay with it, to go deeper into the emotions, like scratching at a scab, to transfer the energy of this emotional onslaught to the canvas. I located the brush, picked it up, and dipped it into the tan paint to begin work on the soldier's face. As I mapped out the cheeks, the eyebrow line, and the bridge of the nose, I wondered what this soldier might be thinking about at this particular moment beyond the physical sensations of shock and pain. Perhaps why he's fighting whatever battle he's fighting in the first place. That everyone is just a person and there is no definitive right or wrong? Thoughts about his family? His daughter if he has one? Why he would make such a stupid fucking choice like this when he has a fucking daughter? I dabbed my mud-colored brush into the canvas, forming the irises of two eyes side by side. Eyes that were open, wide, and staring straight at the viewer. Eyes shit brown like my father's and mine. Gripping the brush like it was a stick I could break if I squeezed hard enough, I stabbed at each eyeball. Why couldn't my dad have shot himself after shooting Mark? If he'd only just shot himself, he wouldn't be continuing to torture me, reaching out to tell me how he's changed, how he's filled with regret, how he can't change the past, how he can't judge a person by their worst moment, how how much he loves me. I wouldn't have to deal with my mother's sudden insistence that he's still my father and that I should talk to him thanks to Cancer, the great teacher. I pressed the brush down so hard it slid out of my hand and rolled across the canvas, leaving a trail of brown splatter. I picked it up, dipped it back into the brown, stood up, and began flicking brown paint across the entire image, harder and harder until it was sending splatters onto the kitchen cabinets and across the counter. If my father really loved me, he would have killed himself. No, no. If he really loved me, he would have controlled himself and stopped himself from slaughtering an innocent man out of jealousy. He could have joined a boxing gym, hiked the Himalayas, or chucked a bunch of dishes at a wall. Seriously, Bob, what the fuck? I threw the paintbrush across the room so I hit the kitchen wall, forming a big brown splotch before plummeting to the floor. I yanked open the tool drawer, picked up the hammer, and was soon pounding the cast against the cutting board, Robert Plant howling in my ear. My hand and wrist were yelping in pain, but I kept pounding. Eventually the plaster gave way, threads and silk covering the board and surrounding countertop. Suddenly there was a hand on my back and I spun around, hammer raised above my head, errand eyes on mine. He yanked off my headphones, so they fell on the floor. Seriously, June, what the fuck? For several moments, I stood still, chest heaving, holding up the hammer like a statue in a gallery, feeling like a guilty child, wishing I could push a button that would allow me to drop through a trapdoor. Uh, I was working. I lowered the hammer to the counter slowly and steadily, as if there were a bomb that might explode if I moved too fast. Okay. His eyes uncannily resembled those of the soldier in my painting, steadfast, wide, and devoid of pupils, looking like they burst apart. Oh, don't worry, I'll clean all this up, I said, my breath catching in my throat as I slid the hammer back into the drawer. You realize how insane this looks? Yeah, babe, I know. I, I, you know, I respect your artistic vision or whatever, but June, this is fucking ridiculous. I know. You're not even planning to look for a job, are you? I am. You're right. You're just going to mooch off me and lie about looking. That's not true. I just had to do something with a cast first. And then I swear I was going to look. But then the song came on my headphones and it made me think of my dad. And I, your dad, your dad, your dad. I get it. I know. It's terrible. And I'm sorry. And I'm sorry if this sounds harsh, but I need a break from talking about it. Because you're turning me into a fucking dad right now and I don't like it. I'm your boyfriend, June, not your parent. My eyes stung and my stomach dropped. I sat to the floor and set my sight on the trails of red paint I'd though. I never asked you to be my parent, Aaron. Are you kidding me? That's all you've been asking me lately. That is not true. I lifted my eyes to meet his, and he looked away. It is true. I felt like I'd been punched in the diaphragm. I stood and went to him, brought my hands to his shoulders, tried to get him to look at me. He wouldn't. It's not true, I said. He picked up my hands and tossed them away like beanbags. "'Then get a job and stop making everything about you all the time,' he said, heading toward the bedroom, where he picked up his jeans off the floor and pulled them on. He returned to the living room, shoved his bare feet into his sneakers, and picked up the keys from the coffee table. "'Where are you going?' I asked. "'I don't know. Out, and then to work. "'Aaron, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm going to clean this up and look for a job.' He didn't respond. He just grabbed his jacket.
3: "'Aaron,
1: really, please don't go. I'm sorry. Really, please don't go. Please don't go. Let's talk about this.' I can't talk about this right now, okay? I have to go out. Let's talk later. I opened the drawer, pulled out the hammer, and rammed it through the canvas. Then I threw the cast at the wall. Thank you.
0: That's very intense. Like that. Always. Um, so I found myself uh, fascinated by the moment uh, toward the end where June becomes so emotionally engaged in her artistic creation and memory of her father that she's in a momentarily frenzied state holding up that hammer toward her boyfriend, um, and it left me wondering uh, your personal feelings on an artist at the moment creating, do you feel personal experience is intrinsically linked to the creative process, or do you feel it's more skillful to unplug our subjectivity in order to be objective about that character situation,
1: <coughs> being, et cetera? Um, I think it's always coming from some level of personal experience, I mean, or observation. But I think that you have to feel an investment emotionally in, in what you're creating, or you can't create it. Yeah.
0: Some writers uh, stay away from writing about writers and the creative process as a whole. Uh, what needs you want to write a novel about an artist and, more broadly, that person's deep-rooted creative drive?
1: Um, I'm interested in what happens to an artist when they stop creating um, or like if they have such a strong impulse and then they and then they don't they don't do it anymore and that's what's gonna happen to her like she's just gonna quit um, and and I'm interested in just what happens like if you have to create and you don't do it what happens to you so, yeah
0: well thank you yeah. thank you very much. Um, Yes, it take five minutes. We're reconvening 325. Uh, so grab a drink, go get whatever you need to do. And uh, we'll have Ron Cole, 325. Woo! Thank you for being here.
4: So we'll have all new, fresh intelligence from William Seward Burroughs. Thank you. I'd like to pass along a flatly insane uh, recent uh, news story. A man swimming in a canal in Florida attacked two alligators with his fists screaming obscenities. The alligators dragged him down and drowned him, and the sheriff's office said no attempt would be made to locate or sanction the alligators. uh, I guess he got what he was looking for. Uh, How many of you have read my novel, The Place of Dead Roads? Good. Excellent. And (laughs) uh, You will remember that uh, Kim Carson and Mike Chase get greased in the end. Not that they're likely to stay dead in this league of operatives. Dying is like trading in your old car. Time for new chances. Now, I just uh, wonder how many of you figured out who killed them? Yes? Uh, It has to be someone I didn't tell, because I told quite a few people here. Uh, Did I tell you? Well, no, no, that's not fair then. No, it has to be someone uh, that I didn't give the answer to. Huh. Looks like I really wrote a Who Done It. So, but obviously in a Who Done It, the obvious suspects are not the ones. It wasn't Bickford's agents at all, and the clues to be found on one on page one twenty six. Uh, Kim was aware of the danger from Joe the Dead. Thought he could handle it. Famous last thoughts. <clears throat> uh, Joe says. Here I am, the best technician in or out of hell, and he brings me back from hell to make slingshots and scout knives and zip guns. Yeah, leave the details to Joe. He left one too many. Joe laughs, a dry rustling sound like a snake shedding its skin. I lifted that out of a spy novel. Good enough to steal. Joe the Dead belongs to a select breed of outlaws known as Nos, natural outlaws dedicated to breaking the so-called natural laws of the universe, foisted on us by physicists, chemists, mathematicians, and biologists, and above all, the monumental fraud of cause and effect, to be replaced with the more fruitful concept of synchronicity. Why, you could, it even fits right into a song, it must be the madam, synchronicity. <laughs> ordinary outlaws break man-made laws. Laws against theft and murder, of course, are broken every second. You only break a natural law once. To the ordinary criminal, breaking a law is a means to an end, uh, obtaining money, removing an obstruction, to the no. Breaking a natural law is an end—the uh, end of that law. <laughs> Ordinary outlaws specialize in accordance with inclination and aptitude, or they did. Many of them are on the endangered species list, with the gliding lemurs, the rusty spotted cat, and the monkey-eating eagle. Well, the monkey-eating eagle will not be missed by the monkeys. <laughs> Consider the Murphy Man. How many of you know what a Murphy Man is? (laughs) Not one. Your Murphy Man steers a mark to a non-existent whore, having located an apartment building without a doorman and with the front door open. It's uh, mostly a blackguard. Only a black man has the Murphy man voice, cool, insinuating, familiar and in the Murphy man face, sincere, unflappable, untrustworthy. He spots a mark from out of town, away from wife and kids for a night on the town, looking for some action, friend? Uh, well, uh, yes. Uh. The Murphy man makes a phone call. It's all set up. He leads the mark to this apartment. Go up one flight, first door on your left. One A, prime grade, friend. And she's ready and waiting. he gives her a big, toothy smile. I wonder if there are any Murphy men left. And then there was the uh, practitioners of the height for the bill. It's a short change routine. You start with $20. You get the change on the counter and then, oh wait a minute, I don't want to take all your change, give me 10 and counts it back minus the 10. It's hard to get a conviction because nobody can explain exactly what happened. (laughs) I've had it explained to me many, many times and I still don't see how it works. But the basic principle can be found in a sketch by Edgar Allan Poe on 19th century hustlers who were known as diddlers. Now the diddler walks into a tobacco store and asks for a plug of tobacco. When the plug is on the counter, he changes his mind. Give me a cigar instead. He takes the the cigar and starts to walk out. Oh, wait a minute. You didn't pay me for the cigar. Of course not. I traded it against the tobacco plug. Well, don't recall you paid me for that either. Paid you for it, why there it is. None of your tricks on traveling men. There's a neat little double mind there somewhere.
0: All right. uh, Ron Colm is an editor of the Unbearables anthology, From Somewhere to Nowhere, The End of the American Dream. He is a contributing editor of Sensitive Skin Magazine. Ron is the author of Divine Comedy, Suburban Ambush, Night Shift which I really enjoyed, I read that. Uh, I'll try to read these other books as well. And a Change in the Weather. He's had work in Flapper House, Great Weather for Media, The Resist Much, Obey Little, The Narvoral Poems to the Resistance Anthology, Maintenance, Live Mag, Local Knowledge, The Opiate, and The Outlaw Bible of American Poetry. Ron's papers were purchased by the New York University Library where they've been catalogued in the false collection. Uh,
3: all right, Ron. It's going to be almost impossible to follow the first two readers. They were wonderful. I tell little stories. Here's a little story that was in The Opiate. Interesting that it appeared in The Opiate. It's called Encyclopedia Salesman. We all live in a yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine. Lenny sings along with the car radio as he drives us across central Pennsylvania on the turnpike. Hey Lenny, no one lives in a fucking yellow submarine. That's all bullcrap, one of the kids. A college student named Rick shouts from the back seat. We all live in a broken down bar a burnout. Lenny jokes looking in the rearview mirror. Hey, keep your eyes on the road. Oh shit. Hold on, just blew a tire. Lenny's battered Chevy station wagon skids across the highway, finally coming to a stop on the shoulder, where we all breathe a sigh of relief. That was a close one, man. You almost sank the submarine, Skipper. Ah, pipe down my lemmings. I'll be right back. Lenny jumps out of the wagon and heads around to the rear, opens it, and flips up the floorboard over the spare tire and emergency jack. He proceeds to use them very efficiently, and just in a couple of minutes, we're back on the road, heading towards Mechanics Bird. Anyone here from Pennsylvania, Mechanicsburg, in Pennsylvania, I believe We left Center City, Philadelphia about an hour ago, and Lenny, who is a lot older than us, is our boss. Most of us are still in school, we're doing this gig as a summer job, but Lenny has been living in the real world for quite a while, and he's figured out how to cope with it. As he drives, he tells us stories about his adventures, how he'd been in the Army in the Quartermaster Corps, based in Germany not too long after the end of the war. He and his buddies had run off with everything that was supposed to go to the troops, including army-issued meals, and then sold it at absurdly inflated prices to the locals. Of course, this meant empty cupboards for the G.I.s they were supposed to be supplying the food and fuel. He thought it was funny that American troops had to requisition even the most basic staples from the Deutsche Volk they were billeted among. Anyway, what Lenny had been hired to do for the company we worked for was to transport us to an obviously poor neighborhood in a post-industrial city a couple hours from Philly and drop us off in a scattershot pattern like paratroopers bailing out of a plane behind enemy lines. Our mission was to sell sets of encyclopedias. Lenny would scribble the names of the cross streets on a scrap of paper and tell us salesmen. And he would stop back in five hours at that exact location, and this salesman better be there or else. We all wore watches. Time was not necessarily on our side. The neighborhoods we were turned loose into had to fit a profile. But he would drive until he found the poor part of town, ancient row houses, broken-down duplexes, etc., and we would look for battered toys in the front yards. That was important. If there was no evidence of kids around, then he would continue to scout around in different areas of the city until he found some. After getting out of his car, I would take a deep breath to clear my mind as I watched my teammates vanish into the distance. That was my way of getting rid of any ethical considerations that were still knocking around inside me. Then I'd check out my surroundings looking for the nearest house most likely to have a prospective client inside. I'd look for peeling paint, Exposed sheets of tar paper under damaged, fake brick siding, unmowed lawns, windows with missing panes of glass. After choosing a victim, I would unlatch the front gate, if there was one, and walk up the usually cracked cement walk to the front door and ring the doorbell. If there wasn't a doorbell, doorbell, I would knock loudly, and, and I would learn to pronounce the word doorbell. Someone usually answered. A haggard young mother with curlers in her hair, an unemployed ex steel worker. Sometimes it was both parents with their kids, opening the door a crack and asking what I wanted. I always followed the script we've been carefully coached to use. I would like to help with, with help you with some of your problems. May I come in and talk to you? I promise not to take up too much of your time. And the person Persons at the door were invariably nice, deferentially because you were dressed in slightly better clothes. You had to be careful not to overdress. We had been trained to impress but not intimidate. And as you followed them into their home, you continued to follow the script. In a nice place you have here, Mr. or Mrs. Jones. Eventually, you would end up on a worn sofa in a dingy living room light struggling to come in through the dirty windows facing one or both of the parents whose children had left the broken toys outside on the lawn or on the porch so how can you help us you'd be asked well this is about your kids you'd answer i would guess you want them to have a better life than you did you graduate from high school mr jones did you mrs jones no wouldn't it be great if your kids did and this is where you would try to get the parent or parents to agree with you the word for this procedure is qualified. It would go for as many yeses yeah, as no, you could no get. And then you came in with a pitch. Two dimes a day, that's all it would cost. Two dimes a day in this tiny cardboard box. And you would soon have enough to buy this wonderful set of encyclopedias <laughs> that would guarantee that your children would eventually make it through high school and then go on to college. Just two dimes a day, that's all. And it usually worked. That fall, I went back to school. Uh, and this one I might as well go ahead and tell about this project (laughs) Um, I'm an idiot I've had too many years Um, the daughter of Joseph Heller is Erica Heller and she had this project where you had to write about having lunch with a famous dead person and I wanted to do it with uh, with someone I knew, but she demanded that I do it with Philip Roth, but I actually only met once. So this is the piece. Um, she's not going to now publish it. It's a long story about all of that, <laughs> but it did get published in Flapper House, <laughs> called The Late Lunch with Philip Roth." I really am old, and so this is unfortunately going to tell you how fucking old I am. I first met Philip Roth many years ago when I was working at Coliseum Books on the corner of 57th Street and Broadway. Coliseum was one of the largest bookstores in Manhattan at the time and was the place to go if you were a serious lover of books. Coliseum was also at the top of the list to make an appearance for published authors, particularly best-selling ones. The tiny, grizzled Norman Mailer came by the store, escorted by his statuesque wife, Norris Church, who walked him like a wayward bulldog up the steep steps to the manager's station, where he piled copies of his books to be signed. He grumbled, but signed them anyway. Then there was a time that the famous novelist Philip Roth stopped by. The store manager, who was starstruck, let him walk up the three steps that led behind the counters where the cashiers and the cash registers were. There was a long, plate glass window overlooking Broadway behind them, and the early afternoon sun would shine brightly through it. The same sun was now etching a fiery halo around Philip Roth's head and shoulders as I looked up at him. I was struck dumb by the vision before me. I still wanted to ask him about one of his early books, letting go that it played an important part in my life when I was in college, but I simply couldn't get the words to come out. He thanked the store manager, turned, and left. He visited the store many times after that as he lived on the Upper West Side. I'd say hello to him, and that was about it. I never did get a chance to engage him in a conversation about letting go before he passed away. So yesterday, I got an email from Charles Lindbergh, and out of curiosity, opened it, expecting to get hacked. But no, it seemed to be on the up and up. The text that had explained it was from Philip Roth, reaching out to me from the void. He apologized for never addressing my love for his novel, Letting Go. But he wasn't interested in talking about that particular book anyway. What was on his mind was his novel, The Plot Against America, and would I be interested in talking about how related to Donald Trump and what was going on in the country right now? Sure, I typed back, type back do you want to do this via emails? No, he answered. Well, meet for lunch at the Russian Tea Room. It only makes sense given the Russian collusion and all that sort of thing. I tried to be topical, sorry. <laughs> They did bail on him in Atlantic City, you know, and it will be your treat. I mean, after all, I'll be doing you a huge favor. You have no idea how much trouble this visit will put me through. I'll get back to you with the particulars in a minute, but first I have to go on portnoy myself. <laughs> Emails like this get me off. In just a couple, he got back to me and asked if I could meet him in about an hour at the famous eatery on 57th Street. I typed back, sure, and turned off my computer, but before doing so, I googled the Russian Tea Room. They had no dress code, and the prices were outrageous for a bookstore clerk like myself. But I figured I could use a credit card and worry about it later. When I got there, I saw Philip Roth sitting at the bar with a glass of water before him. I used to and introduced myself, wondering how the fuck he crossed the line from the dead to the living, and asked if he wanted a beer. Sure, he said. I bought Tika three. It's Russian. Only costs $18, and it's true. I went there to research for this piece. And they were fucking $18. They said, give me a sip. (laughs) I'll give you a couple quarters. And to answer your question, all of us in the nether zone are walking among you all the time. We pick and choose our appearances very carefully. Fake news and all that. So how are my books selling, particularly the plot against America? I hear it's regarded as being questioned, not a word I use often, meaning it predicts Mr. Trump and what's happened to the body politic recently. Well, I've got to tell you, I love that book. It sure isn't all that far away from Portnoy. I marked up my copy, page 153, where Alvin talks about peeing and holding his cock and falling on the bathroom floor. Could have been lifted from it directly. <laughs> hey, you want a bite to eat? I read on the internet that the second booth in the back to our left is called the Tootsie Booth. That part of the film was actually shot here. No one's sitting there now, so we could head over and grab it, and order lunch. Um, I think I'm starting to fade. Don't know if I can hang out much longer. Jesus really wanted to talk about the p tape, the alleged p tape. It's like that stuff on page 153 kind of resages it, in a way. Glad you mentioned that part of the book. So much I wanted to talk about. Trump's limited vocabulary, his lying fascist tendency. Sorry, have to sign off here. And he was gone. I got the check, and almost checked out myself. One more short one, or am I yeah, done? Oh, yeah, one more short one, okay. Yeah, perfect, perfect. This was yeah. written for uh, that series, it's a lady stardust, uh, it was during um, it was during uh, uh, Burroughs, William Burroughs' birthday, so yeah. I wrote a piece for William Burroughs' birthday, sorry. It's called Privates. A long time ago, when things were much cheaper, I used to go to clubs and hear a lot of music. One of the clubs I went to was called Privates on 85th Street on the Upper East Side one time it had been a private school, but it closed, and that was a cool place to see bands. A lot of great music happened there, from Bo Diddley to the Specials, and I saw them all. <laughs> because of my bookstore connections, I got invited to an exclusive William Burroughs event that was scheduled to take place in that venue. At that time, I was managing New Morning, a bookstore in Soho named after the Bob Dylan album. It was owned by High Times Magazine, and for that reason, it was considered hip. We made sure we always had a complete run of William Burroughs books in stock. His work, published by Grove Press, was very popular. So I was thrilled at getting a chance to see him, a writer I admired in person. I had always considered Burroughs to be the American Celine, another writer I loved, and I figured that Allen Ginsberg must have felt the same way. Ginsberg seemed to surround himself with archetypes. He took along only one of each, in each category in his, on his extended beatnik trip. Anne Waldman was the token woman, Corsa was the crazy dude, and Burroughs was the European experimental prose writer, the European intellectual experimental prose writer. I got there just as Burroughs, Burroughs was making his grand entrance. And to this day, that scene lives vividly in my mind. He came in with an entourage, an army of very young men, all of them about the same height, and all very well dressed. They crowded around Bill, which seemed to raise him up so that his feet barely touched the floor. There was a humming sound emanating from them as they passed by. It was like the buzzing of a cluster of worker bees carrying the queen through a throne in the hive. They escorted him to what looked like a gazebo, a small, brown structure in the middle of the hall. And then the celebration ensued. I got loaded, and the rest of that evening was just a blur. That's <laughs>
0: Thank you. Sorry, yeah, yeah. That's cool. um, one of the most cool. noticeable things about your writing, I, I feel, from having read, read your book, is uh, your directness. And As a reader, I, I feel like it's conveyed that you've owned this quality of your work over quite some time because it almost feels like slipping out of a lab boot or something like that. So, how did you come to employ this uh, style as a prose writer, and is it different from where you started? Oh,
3: good point. I always been interested in the coincidences that happen to us as we walk around or as we go through life. Uh, To me, they're like the universe sort of tapping you on the shoulder saying, hey, take a look at this. So I try to get those coincidences down on paper, even more so in stuff I write now. I really I, I still believe that all of us are connected in some way. As you said when you started this out, there is sort of a humanist notion that we're all in this together, and if we can somehow keep a community going forward, perhaps we'll survive this particular hitch and die too, but I really do think that from the particular you go to the general. If you get the particular right, in the end you kind of like sort of at least hint at the general of what's going on. That's great. Yeah, that makes sense enough. Speaking
0: of Night Shift, which I, like I talked about before, and speaking of uh, a couple of pieces we just read, um, use your professional experience as, as a subject of stories or as a setting for the, for the story. And I'm wondering, do you, do you feel when you're writing about being at work, is it animating it with a new meaning, or are you just trying to kind of convey it from a journalistic standpoint? This is like just how it is. Like, Is it is it coming... Is it turning? It, are you it turning into something else by writing about it? Is basically what I'm saying in your mind.
3: Well, sure. You're always trying to transmute things, I suppose. That's for That's a really good question. Um, I do that almost without thinking about it, because when those things happen, you happen. You are in that particular space, and that space is defining to some degree. But once again, I mean, the second writer talking about the painting and the father and all those various every this this was really interesting everyone does try and turn what they know so obviously you're an artist and i mean that everyone does try and turn those things and you try to reach the universal through the particular i think and then i suppose that's what we're all trying to do all right well this is fun uh thanks
0: so much Check out Ron's work, it's, uh, it's, 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 oh, do have uh, for it's, yeah, yeah, check, check it out, and, uh, this is Chogutell Volume 4, uh, we'll be back May 4th, the day before Cinco de Mayo, uh, yeah, I guess I'm just saying that subconsciously, because I already know I'm going to drink a lot, uh, so, looking forward to that, uh, hope you can make it, and thanks for being here, thank you, uh, have a great
3: day.